Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. And welcome to another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. Brad, my man, what's going on? Not so much, Steve. I just had this um, interesting insight that I'll share. It has nothing to do with our topic today. Um, but interesting nonetheless, as I was um, preparing some breakfast before recording this morning, I thought that the best way to describe America is we're the country that develops a vaccine that could effectively end COVID in miraculous amount of time, just the cream of the crop. And then we have 30% of the population that refuses to take it. We're the country that has the National Basketball Association in LeBron James. We're also the country that has the January 6 riots in Donald Trump. So America is just like this polar extreme of greatness and not so greatness. Um, and yeah, we could do a whole episode on these extremes. And it's just very interesting to live in this place right now. Um, but that's not the topic of our podcast today. The topic of our podcast today is Phil Mickelson who at age 50 just won the U.S. Open, completing a career Grand Slam. And as you all know, we are interested in all things peak performance and sustainable success. Um, Steve and I are both not getting younger. We are humans, which means we also get older. So we take note when people perform um, at a really high level past what conventional wisdom would say is their prime. So we're going to talk about four main things today as it relates to Phil Mickelson. We're going to talk about how he got an exemption to play in the tournament and why that's so important in the mindset that he must have brought with him to still win. We're going to talk about um, his hard work, which is the two words that came up over and over and over again in interviews following the win. We're going to talk about focus very much in tandem with hard work and how when we think of hard work, we think physical, but Phil Mickelson, a big part of what he describes as hard work is his ability to keep his head razor sharp for 18 holes. And then we'd be remiss not to address something else that is getting a lot of coverage, which is his very interesting diet, which involves um, fairly intense periods of fasting. All right. So let's dive into this. You could say Mickelson is at one extreme in the sense that he is a 50-year-old who pulled off a major win at the U.S. Open, which is about as extreme as you can get. So, you know, I, I find this story fascinating, Brad, um, for a number of different reasons. But a as I dug into it, because I am not a golf fan, but... I am a performance fan, and when I see someone do something, you know, mind-bogglingly great, I pay attention to it. But what really caught me is that exemption part, is that here's a guy who pulled off a win after he wasn't even, like, qualified to the event. Right. He got, right? A, he got a pity qualification. I mean, if you read between the lines, he wasn't yeah. in the top 50 or whatever it is that you have to be to qualify. He hadn't won any of the preconditional tournaments. He literally said, I'm Phil Mickelson. I'm an old timer and uh, I'd love to play in this tournament. It's one I haven't won yet. So would you please let me in? And presumably the people making that decision are making that decision because there's a lot of 50 year olds that watch golf and there are a lot of big time Phil Mickelson fans. 
and because they probably thought he wouldn't have a chance of winning. Yeah, you know, golf is known for doing this, which I think is great, uh, allowing their kind of past superstars and champions to still play, even if they aren't at that level of caliber. Um, I think it's great for, you know, the fans in the game uh, because it keeps people around. But it's interesting, like, you know, I looked it up. He he ranked 116th in the world, and he needed to be top 60. So it's almost double of, you know, what what he, you know, what he needed to be, which is which is wild and nuts. And that ranking is based on his recent play. So uh, the reason I think I'm honing in on this is pretty simple is that it's pretty crazy to go from, okay, I get the pity entry, like the history entry of once upon a time I was great. So they're going to allow me to come in here and play. And then, like, think that you've got a you've got a shot, and then more so once you're in that position to have a shot, to actually take advantage of it and not let those negative doubts of like, well, I'm 116th in the world, and I'm playing against these like 30 year olds who are at the peak of their athletic prime and are you know ranked top 10 in the world. Yeah, how do we manage this? Well, he's clearly a very fierce competitor. And I think it's worth being values neutral about this. So when it comes to living a good life, do you want to be like Phil Mickelson at age 50? Or do you want to be like the more typical 50-year-old? And I don't think that either is better or worse. Um, to be clear, what I, what I mean is that I think most people would take this entry and treat the tournament as kind of like a celebration of a great career. So not necessarily go in fiercely competitive you know, win or bust, but going with the mindset of, oh, this is sweet. This is kind of like a victory lap. I've had a hell of a career. You know, I'm probably going to be remembered as a top 20, maybe top 10 golfer of, of modern times. So I'm going to go have fun. Whereas Mickelson approached the tournament saying, all right, I'm going to win. And again, I don't think that it's better or worse. You could argue that it's better because like freaking won the tournament. You could also argue it's worse because he's at a stage of his life where it's like, all right, you know, what would it take for him just to be content and enjoy things a bit? Um, and maybe this is it. I hope this is it, right? This is the career grand slam. For people that don't know a thing about golf, there are four big tournaments. Mickelson had won three. He had never won the U.S. Open. Now he's won all four. And the other interesting thing, not to get us too far off the, the exemption point, is it'll be fascinating to see if he retires or not now. I mean, I certainly would. I think. I don't know. I shouldn't say that because I'm not 50 and I didn't just win the U.S. Open. But I'd like to think I would be content enough to retire at this point. So I, I don't think you will. And um, I, I, well, let's let's dive into that a little bit. We talked about well, we're going to talk about effort and the work. But I think underlying that is something that that we talked about and wrote a whole book on, which is passion. And this quote stood out for me so much that I, I tweeted it. And it's from Phil. It said, my desire to play is the same. I've never been driven by exterior things. I've always been intrinsically motivated because I love to compete. I love playing the game. I love having opportunities to play against the play against the best at the highest level. 
that's what drives me. And I think that's what it is. The belief that I could still do it inspired me to work harder. I mean, there you go. That's the definition of harmonious passion, like the best kind of passion that is associated with longevity, peak performance, and life satisfaction. Um, I did not see that quote. I got to follow you more closely on Twitter, I guess. But um, yeah, that's spot on. And I don't think I'll retire after hearing that. And I'm going to go back then and say, like, I think he does go in as a fierce competitor to win. But it sounds like he goes in as a fierce competitor to just play his best game of golf. I mean, wherever the chips fall, they fall. And tying this all together to the exemption, I think it's that kind of mindset that lets you not give a shit about whether you're the first person in rank number one in the world or whether you got in on an exemption because you don't care. You just love the game and you love competing. Um, Way back in the day in high school, I had a football coach that would say that the number one asset of being a linebacker being in the secondary is to be super quick so you can make a play and react to the ball. The second asset is having a short memory when you don't. And I just love that because it's like that short memory is when you fail, when you're ranked 116th. Well, when the next snap happens, when you're on the first hole, the exemption doesn't matter. You're, you're competing and you have to have a short memory about all that stuff. And harmonious passion being driven intrinsically allows you to have a short memory because the external stuff is just noise that you can disagree. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think I think that sums it up well. And I think he, you know, that quote actually gets to the heart of it because you say he says in there that like I love playing the game and I love competing against the best. You know, and, and that to me sends the signal. It's not competing against the best to you know prove myself to um, get a higher status, right? It's competing against the best because that allows me to bring out the best in myself, right? It's that competition side that brings out the best versus like the searching for status. And I think that's probably why, again, uh, why he's been able to stick in this game for so long and why he's able to take the exemption instead of seeing it as like, well, I'm not good enough. This is a threat to my legacy or a threat to, you know, my status as I come in, in here and bomb or play like the 116th best player against all these top 50 best guys. It's just pretty clear to me that he's like separated those two things. Yeah. And golf is such a head game. Um, So in my coaching practice, I coached for two years, uh, one of the top golfers in the sec. So a young guy, a college golfer, and he struggled with the short memory stuff. And um, something, and I'm not coaching him on golf, right? It's all on what happens in his head and in his heart. But we talked about that it would be really beneficial for him to just do all this negative visualization, to picture himself falling apart in a tournament, losing the championship, to literally go and purposefully like shank five balls and then hit a perfect shot out of the sand trap. So we didn't work positive thinking and and calming yourself and deep breathing. I mean, don't get me wrong. We worked that a little, but we also worked the other side of the equation, which is being in a really crappy headspace or being really down and showing up. And when the ball's on the tee or the ball's in the sand trap, the only thing that matters is the shot in front of you. And I think Phil Mickelson has clearly mastered the mindset of that because he took the last two years of performance 
which is a lot more than a few bad shots, and was able to put that out of his mind when he stepped up to the the first the first hole. And he had a pretty consistently good tournament. It's not like he rallied at the end. And no doubt, I think there's like a momentum and inertia effect that once you start rolling, you start believing. And once you start believing, you keep rolling. And it's a really positive, um, like upward swirl that you get out of that. Yeah, I mean, there's biology behind that, too. There's that there's a nice testosterone effect um, that occurs where after you win or after you get on a roll, you get a boost in testosterone, which then boosts confidence and mood and um, and all sorts of stuff. It's why in baseball, when you look at double headers, teams almost always are they are more likely to sweep it instead of split it or why in tennis matches in close matches if you win the first set you're like 60 plus percent chance likely to win the next set and i would argue that's why it's so important and i'm biased because i'm I'm, this is a firm part of how i coach why it's so important to practice when you lost the first game or you lost the first set because like it's easy when things are going well And you don't have to work that as much because you've got like biology and emotion behind you. It's a lot harder when things aren't going well. So I think a a, a practical tip regardless, you don't have to be a golfer, you don't even have to be an athlete, is it's really beneficial to develop skills to be able to perform at your best when you lost the metaphorical first set. Yeah. And, you know... um... If you look at another great golfer, Tiger Woods, and some of the stuff his dad did was pretty controversial, but uh, one of the things that stuck out to me is in training when he was young, and I don't know if I'd want my dad to do this, but he'd introduce all sorts of different you know, distractions or things that would make Tiger mess up, and then Tiger would have to figure his way out of it. And, and that, you know, maybe not to that extreme, but that's what you kind of do when you're looking, when you're working in the performance world is you don't try and just work on the perfect, you try and figure out how to get out of bad things. And there's an age component there. Doing that with a 22, 25, 26, maybe even 18 year old that knows that you're in their corner is very different than doing that with a three and a four year old. And I think the, the former might lead to a great golfer, but it might also lead to like adverse childhood events and trauma that manifest in ugly ways. Whereas the latter, I think, is much more productive just because from a relationship standpoint, not even parenting, a coaching standpoint, you have to know that someone really believes in you before they start messing with you. Oh, 100%. I mean, you can't if your first day at practice is doing crazy stuff and putting people in a hole, it's not going to go well. Right. This is the old school like football model that often they put the cart before the horse and they start doing crazy things before they've gained like the trust of and the trust of the player and the player realizes that this coach is in my corner and has my support and isn't just trying to like, you know, get me for my performance gains on the field, but actually cares. So you've got to get that care and trust and support before you start doing what I'd call the crazy things. Yeah. So, all right. So there we go. The exemption, what we can all take away from that. Uh, Hard work. This is another thing that I found probably most fascinating is that when he talks, and this will tie in with focus, we'll tie these two topics together. When he talks about hard work, yes, there's a physical component to it, 
But the physical stuff wasn't, it's not that he was doing things that he had never done in his career when he was younger. It's that he was still able to do like 80% of the practice and the work that he did when he was younger. And he attributed that more to what's going on in between his ears than his actual physical conditioning. So he said that the biggest challenge for him was to be able to practice staying sharp and, and focused. And I think that this is so true in any pursuit, not just physical, that as you age, it is harder to stay sharp. I was a significantly sharper writer, I don't know, 10 years ago than I am today. And by sharp, I don't mean better. I don't mean more thoughtful, but I mean I could show up at the coffee shop and just start cranking. I was less distractible. I could think more quickly. And that's not there anymore. So it takes more deliberate effort to set myself up to get into those zones. And I think such a part of performing as you age in any uh, pursuit is realizing that as you get older, your physical and psychological sharpness declines. That happens to everybody. That is unequivocal. I don't care if you're Peter Thiel and you're taking young vampire's blood and putting it into your system. Your ability to think on your feet and react and be strong and fast starts declining with age. So you just have to be more deliberate. At the extreme example, Steve, it's something that you always talk to me about in terms of athletic performance is a high school athlete, you can get away with whatever as a coach. You can have them do the dumbest workouts because they've got so much testosterone. They're so physically sharp that they'll recover and they'll get better from anything. As you get older, you have to be more deliberate. Well, if you have to be more deliberate when you're 22 and then when you're 26, imagine what it takes when you're 50. And we often talk about this physically, but the same thing is no doubt true psychologically. Yeah, uh, you know, it's the the in athletics, it's like the clean slate phenomenon where and when you're in high school, as you said, you can handle just about anything because you've got this sharpness intellectually, you've got this sharpness physically that allows you to handle things, bounce back and recover. The way I like to think of it is as we get older, our world narrows, right? And we can talk about, oh, this is often talked about, as you pointed out, in the physical realm. But in the focus intellectual realm, I think it's even more um, important and prevalent. Because think of it like this. Um, we all have some crazy uncle, relative, etc. that goes down the Facebook rabbit hole, right? And they go towards like these conspiracies and all sorts of stuff. We all have that. Why does that tend to occur in, you know, older individuals? Why aren't our, you know, 20 year old or our teenagers going down these rabbit holes and believing uh, conspiracies to a large degree? Maybe they are, but they're not sharing on Facebook t as much and et cetera, et cetera. Um, what does that happen? I think it's because, you know, our ability to sort, filter, focus, like, degrades us over time and when we're older we just kind of catch on to something and then it infiltrates our brain it's no different than why you know cable news tends to infiltrate the older generation where they get caught on you know long binges of fox news or cnn and that becomes their viewpoint so our ability to focus just like our ability to lift weights bounce back and recover degrades and though the only solution we have is to 
do the same thing we do physically, which is train it up. Yeah, train it up and pay more attention to little details as you get older. And there's a difference between obsessing over little details and paying attention to them. So things like sleep, things like nutrition, things like your environment and your surrounding, and even like psychological detail. And what I mean by that is when you're young and you're sharp, it's very easy just to hop out of bed and get going. It's very easy to do a 10-second warm-up and be in the middle of your workout. Um, it's very easy to find a person attractive and just like start to tell yourself stories about how you're going to fall in love with them. As you get older, all those different things in different domains of life, they tend to take more effort. And that's a skill too, is learning that, hey, it takes more to activate yourself. Um, so, you know, I've certainly seen this with sleep. I used to hop out of bed and like, boom, I'm off to the races. And that's a lot harder for me now than it was even just like five, 10 years ago. And some of it is aging. Some of it is having a kid. Like there's all kinds of variables. But the point is a new skill that I've had to develop is like getting out of bed. It just used to happen naturally. It doesn't anymore. So it's like this push and pull. You don't want to completely fight your body because clearly it's telling me like, eh, you're still tired. But you also have to learn these skills as you get older that helps you focus and sharpen up because things are just not as easy as they were. And this is like very meta and philosophical, but I think that aging gracefully is about letting go on some things and pushing back on others. Because if you just try to be who you were at 23, you're in for a rude awakening and you're just going to be fighting yourself for the rest of your life. But if you want to have like a rich, full experience of living, then you have to push back a little bit because otherwise you just kind of go through the motions. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's this is an on-the-fly theory, but maybe... Aging gracefully is about kind of knowing when to accept limits that are posed by aging versus when to try to be really deliberate and push back against those. Yep, I'd agree. And I think tying this back to Phil Mickelson, there's another great quote that I found uh, that kind of sums up his view, which, which kind of fits in your theory to a large degree. He said, I'm making more and more progress just by trying to elongate my focus. I might try to play 36, 45 holes in a day and try to focus on each shot so that when I go out and play 18, it doesn't feel like it's that much. I might try to elongate this time that I end up meditating. I'm trying to use my mind like a muscle and just expand it because as I've gotten older, it's been more difficult for me to maintain a sharp focus, a good visualization, visualization and see the shot. Love it. So this ties back to something that I wrote a very popular column about maybe three, three and a half years ago um, at Outside Magazine. And then it also was discussed in a prior Growth EQ podcast on Tom Brady, which is the curves of wisdom in raw talent. And as you age, raw talent goes down, but wisdom goes up. And Phil Mickelson's got wisdom. The only way you get wisdom is through lived experience. So it's probably the wisdom that allows him to just say, whatever, I got this exemption. I don't care. I'm still going to go show up and compete and, and, and play my best. Because, you know, the, the amount of times that you go through failing and you realize things are going to be okay and how to bounce back, that's wisdom. Makes sense, right? As you get older, you have more wisdom. But your ability to be physically sharp and mentally sharp, as we discussed, goes down. So what he's saying in that quote is he's training the thing that's going down 
and trying to keep that up as long as possible so that when the wisdom curve meets the talent curve, you get like this really high point. Whereas my guess is a 24-year-old that was super physically sharp, 10 times sharper than Phil Mickelson and even 10 times psychologically sharper, if that person played in on an exemption, there's no way they would have performed this well because they wouldn't have had the wisdom to be able to put the last shitty year of play behind you. And for the research scientists in the group, Brad's little theory is called fluid versus crystallized intelligence in the psychology world. It's which not is, my theory. It's fluid versus crystallized yeah. intelligence. Yeah. Um, fluid is just what you think. It's like the ability to kind of reason and think flexibly. Flexibly crystallized intelligence is accumulation of knowledge, knowledge, facts, skills, et cetera, wisdom in um, Brad's dichotomy. Yeah. So there we go. So I think it's important that hard work isn't always just in the gym for an athlete. It's also focus. And having coached so many executives, I'd say that, of course, the opposite holds true out in the traditional workplace, which is that hard work isn't always just your head. It's also physical um, because being physically active keeps you psychologically sharp and being psychologically sharp helps you express your physical potential. Um, and both take more work as you get older. So let's, let's dive in real quick on how to work on this focus, because I think it's important. I think it's more important, not even just for those of us who are aging or who are getting older and, and losing our kind of fluid intelligence. Uh, but it's important because in today's society, something we've talked about a lot distractibility is so high so in there in that quote i read mickelson talks about two things which is he's playing longer forcing him to focus like for a longer period of time so that 18 holes in a day which is his competition uh doesn't feel as big of a deal in running terms i i train this as well with my athletes in the sense that I tell them, hey, leave the music at home, ditch the headphones, ditch the podcast, don't bring your phone. You need to get used to dealing with the boredom of running and being able to focus through it, especially during difficult times, right? Headphones listening music might increase our motivation and allow us to get better performance or get, get through a workout. But then we're not training our focus. We're training our focus to pay attention to the music and distractibility instead of being able to zone in on the task at hand. We can apply the same thing outside of the athletic realm. So when I sit down and write, which is writing as a practice, I don't want to have my internet on, my phone next to me, etc. because I'm, I lose the ability to focus. And as Brad rightly pointed out, you know, 10 years ago, I could get away with a lot of things because my mind was sharper, more flexible, could handle things, could have the Wi-Fi on and a ton of different tabs there. Now, what I have to do is I do all my research beforehand, have it all in a dock, and then turn the Wi-Fi off and um, go straight to writing where I'm focused on that task. So putting yourself in positions to train this focus regardless of what the task is, is important. Yep. And just being more deliberate about it. Like you can't get away with stuff that you used to get away with as you get older. 
Um, and again, accepting some of this and saying, you know what, I don't care. I want to enjoy it. I don't want to work hard in this area versus identifying the areas that you do want to work hard and using your energy and, and cognitive and psychological resources to, to push back there. So I think that we would be remiss not to mention um, the last thing that's been getting a lot of publicity and press after Mickelson's uh, U.S. Open win, which is his interesting nutritional and, and diet habits, um, particularly fasting. So it seems like he fasts for 36 hours once a week, and then every few months does a three-day fast where he is, it's been reported, drinking water and coffee. So we're addressing this because as longtime fans and listeners know, we generally are pretty skeptical, bordering cynical on any kind of diet, particularly fasting. And the reason for our skepticism and cynicism is that we have yet to see any convincing evidence that fasting is superior to any other way of eating, A, and B, because when you do fast, which is an extreme way of having a relationship with food, you become prone to disordered eating, which is bad. Now, it's undeniable that Mickelson was overweight, potentially obese, um, just you know, looking at images, a couple years ago, and then he got quote unquote serious about dieting and started this fasting program and now looks very lean and strong. And that has helped him as a golfer. That is what experts say. I don't know golf, but it would make sense that if you're leaner and stronger, you'll be a better golfer. So to put um, any kind of editorializing aside, calories in, calories out. And if fasting is a way to limit calories or to limit eating crappy foods, because if you only eat once a day, you have less opportunities to eat junk food, and you can plan one healthy meal a day, or in his case, sometimes one healthy meal every two days, three days, whatever, then you're going to lose weight. And that will be an effective way to lose weight. Now, the risks of fasting, as I alluded to, are that you develop unhealthy relationships with food, or if you're really only eating like that infrequently, you get some muscle wasting and a lot can go wrong. So I think that we've said our bias and Steve, I'll, I'll end my little soliloquy here in a second. The media loves this stuff because it's an extreme thing. They can ask questions about it. People like are interested. It's intriguing. I suppose that fasting was a very effective way for Phil Mickelson to lose weight. And to date, he's gotten lucky that it hasn't caused him injury, either psychologically or physically. I suppose that if Phil Mickelson would have worked with a nutritionist and gone on more of a um, conventional plan to lose weight, such as a minor reduction in calories and a higher quality of food over two years, he would have had the same result. Now, he might say, and I know people like this, that I don't have the willpower to do that. So the only way it's going to work for me is to be very rigid and set this rule. And that's totally fine so long as you know that you're playing with fire. Yeah, you know, it's it's a tricky one um, because it's hard to separate out the physiological from the psychological. And when you come back down to it, every diet works and doesn't. It just depends if you stick with it, right? And that's what the research shows. Like there's no, you know, 
low carb is not special. You know, keto is not special. They all work or don't based on if you stick with them and they create some sort of caloric deficit um, in terms of weight loss. That is. So that's really important because we might have some new listeners that don't know our take on this. And this is not our take. This is like years and years of evidence from the best nutrition labs. You can eat the highest carbohydrate diet and you can eat an all meat keto diet. And if on both diets, you're eating 1600 calories and you're exercising the same amount and burning the same amount, you will lose the same amount of weight, period. You can also eat meat, carbohydrates, fruits, vegetables, sugars, fats. And if you eat 1600 calories and you like all that matters is calories in and calories out based on the, the, the research, there are these bioplausible theories around insulin and this, that, and the other, but there's no evidence that any of that makes a difference. So the only reason a super restrictive food limiting diet works is because you eat less if you can't eat all food groups. But if you can have a healthy relationship with all food groups and eat all food groups in a high quality and correct quantity, then that is just as good as any specialized diet. With one exception, which is for people with diabetes, there are very particular diets that have a pretty strong and growing evidence base for efficacy. Great summary. And uh, to you know, um, give some more evidence behind this, because sometimes you get a backlash from the low-carb folks, is my favorite example is if you look at the diet of uh, Kenyan distance runners, it's like all all carbs all carbs like tons of sugar because they they drink you know sugar sugar laced tea we'll call it um and you know their skin and bones because they run a ton and live at altitude and do all that stuff so you know it really is it's complex and it's simple but getting back to Mickelson's diet so one thing that I'd like to point out because I think when we hear fasting, we assume, oh, you're just not eating anything, like you're having water and that's it. And if reporting is correct on this, that's not exactly the case with Mickelson. Is he fasts for, you know, depending on the time, 36 hours, but during it, he's drinking water and then he's also drinking a coffee blend, which if reports are correct, coffee blend with almond milk, some coconut oil, and some other things like L-theanine, which is giving him some calories and also giving him a boost of caffeine, which probably allows him psychologically to get through the hunger pains because he's almost supplementing with a little bit of calories. And caffeine's and, an appetite suppressant. We know that. Yeah, so. yeah. And that caffeine to suppress appetite and also like give them this energy that would generally decrease as um, you went along in your fast. Right. And this gets back to the calories in, calories out. And I, and I still don't think what Phil Mickelson's doing is healthy by, by any, I would not recommend it to anyone, put it that way. But if you put enough like coconut oil or butter in your coffee, a la like 2000 plus calories, then that's great because you're getting your 2000 calories. Um, I still don't think it makes sense because like there's some diversity in their micronutrients that aren't found in butter or coconut oil. Um, but there's that hilarious skit. And I think it's so true 
where the the um, purported biohacker puts a pound of butter in his coffee and then says, this is so great. Like after I drink my coffee, I'm not hungry for three hours. And the joke is, is because if there's a pound of butter in your coffee, there's a, it's a pound of butter's worth of calories. <laughs> yes. It has nothing to do Love with it. the coffee. It's because you eat a stick <laughs> of butter. But but that's where, you know, not to go on a long diatribe here, but that's where a lot of this stuff in the diet uh, wars, especially in fasting, gets lost in the sense that there are specific biological things that happen if you fast. But if we're drinking butter in our coffee or milk in our coffee or whatever you have it, that biology shifts a little bit. Right. So it's it it's like we throw it all together and we're like, oh, we're fasting except for A, B and C. And like, again, it all comes back to calories, as you know, Brad pointed out, if we're talking weight loss. But, you know, the thing about performance, I think, as we've kind of dove into Mickelson's, you know, fasting diet, fasting plus coffee diet is this is that. Even with really good performers, not everything they do actually helps their performance. Okay. It means that, hey, you know, the majority of what they do helps their performance. But going back to something we said on the Tom Brady episode, is that all these other things, you know, special sleep garments that Brady had, this crazy, you know, training technique. Just because Tom Brady's doing it and he's good doesn't mean it actually benefits benefits him. It's really hard to slice and dice things because even really good performers do some crazy stuff, and we can t- you and know crazy we can stuff sells in the media, so that's g- going to get disproportionate coverage. It's also really important, and and we can tell this too because you can look back in the past, right, and look at the superstars of the 1960s or 70s or what have you who were amazing performers in their own right and doing amazing things without the technology. And they were doing some crazy stuff that we now definitively know did not work and may it might have hampered their performance, but they were still the best in the world, right? Uh, Jim Ryan, the world uh, record holder in the mile in the 60s, comes to mind because if you look at his training, it's filled with stuff. If a modern coach dictated a bunch of that stuff, they'd be like, they'd be fired. You'd be crazy because he was doing the amount of intense work he was doing was mind boggling, right? Um, it wouldn't be applied to even the best in the world, you know, the best miler in the world today, but he could get away with it. And, you know, he was the best in the world. That doesn't mean we should copy them. Same thing applies with some of the stuff that Mickelson does, some of the stuff Brady does, some of the stuff that, you know, LeBron does just because you're the best doesn't mean it works. Yeah. I think that's a really, um, valid point. And I think it is, um, a good enough place to end Steve. This was a really fun conversation. Um, if you guys enjoyed the conversation and you like the work that we do and you want more exclusive content, sign copies of our books, a live mastermind group where we discuss these topics in such great depth and detail, um, check out our Patreon community at www.patreon.com slash the growth equation for as little as the price of a coffee to, if you want to be in the elite tier, maybe you're looking at three, four coffees a month, 
Um, you get all kinds of neat access and you help keep this podcast completely independent and free of sponsorship. So www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. Check us out there and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.